0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Magnolia's First. To learn more, visit m1bc.org. Uh, so a few weeks ago, me and two of my friends decided we wanted to go try this new place out. One of them had already been there. Uh, it's called the Rice Box. It's down the Heights. If you've never been, I strongly recommend now that I've gone. Uh, but one of our friends didn't get off till 5 p.m., and so we had to wait. Uh, and I don't know how you are when it comes to food but I'm a fanatic, okay? And I mean that like to a very dangerous extreme. Like I love food to the extent where sometimes I probably need help, okay? Uh, And so we're excited. We planned this the day before and we have to wait for one guy to get off work. And so uh, what we ultimately did is we all said, you know what we should do? Let's just not eat all day until we go to the rice box and eat, like this is gonna be amazing, so that you anticipate it way more. And so that's what we did. We waited all day long, uh, Ivan back there, he was the one we were waiting on that got off at five, and so he gets off at five o'clock, and we're pumped, man, I'm already like, I can go quite a, while, quite a while without food and it doesn't really bother me, but I'm getting to the, like five p.m., that's a long time. And so I'm like, oh man, I'm getting hungry, I'm kinda anxious, but I'm kinda, I'm kinda hangry also, like I'm irritable, and so we get in the car, Uh, And, you know, we're going toll roads all the way. So we're going to go 249 to the beltway, around to 45, and and loop on down to the heights. And so we get on 249, we're cruising, and we, we, we start getting close to the exit for the beltway. And it's just like the closer you get, the more excited you get. And then traffic just stopped. And I mean dead stop. Like... This wasn't like, oh, we're slowing down and rolling for about 15 minutes. I mean, dead stop in one spot for one hour. Ivan was there, you can ask him. One hour, sitting in the same spot on 249. And some of you were like, oh, that's kind of rough. But here's what was worse. Our exit was right there. We could see it. You could see the exit the entire time. And I'm just like... Oh my God! So what? What turned from leaving at five fifteen and getting there at six fifteen? We are now still sitting there at six thirty in the same spot we had been sitting, staring at the exit, and the only thing hindering me from the from rice box, the only thing hindering me from beautiful flavor and glory, was traffic. And now, granted, let me say this: it was a car accident, and so don't let me be that insensitive guy that's like they've inconvenienced me. It wasn't like that. I wasn't mad at the people. I was just mad at the situation, right? Because the traffic was hindering me from getting to where I wanted to go. I'm sure we've all experienced it uh, and to the largest degree about the only thing we could say, frustrating inconvenience, right? It's really not persecution. It's not real suffering. It's just inconvenient. But how much so do we find this same scenario in our spiritual journey? Right? Like, we're looking to progress spiritually, to to travel down this spiritual road. And just in case you're curious, I don't... Like, we all all have a destination. And I think for most of us, in our minds, the destination is heaven. And you're not wrong in saying that. uh, But heaven is a locked bet, right? Like, Christ purchased that by His blood. It's not dependent upon your works. And so... You're not trying to maneuver your way into heaven. You get there because Jesus Christ paid for your sins on the cross. And so really the destination for our life is godliness. Right? That's what the Bible calls Christians to live unto is Christ's likeness. And so we're pressing on what Paul says, pressing on toward the goal of the high calling of Christ Jesus. And so For us, we're wanting to move forward in godliness and in intimacy with God, but what we keep encountering are these various hindrances and what we're calling this series, roadblocks. And these roadblocks tend to to jam us up and stop us from moving forward on our spiritual journey from any progression. And the one we're going to talk about today... Uh, what I would say is probably, I don't know if I'd say it's my biggest, but it's definitely in my, my like it might be tied for first. Uh, and We're talking about forgiving self, or if I could put it in a, in a more synonymous and familiar term, guilt. We'll talk about guilt this morning. And how guilt, I don't know how many of you deal with guilt, I imagine most everyone to some degree, guilt is paralyzing. It's, it's honestly, it's a paralyzing thing to deal with guilt. Uh, some of you deal with it far worse. If you've ever, uh, if, you, if you are or are or, or in relationship with addicts, the, the biggest struggle for an addict is guilt. Guilt cycles run addicts back into addiction cycles because it's what, all they feel they can deserve. So you see how guilt triggers processes of progression. It, it, it halts it completely. And it does the same thing in our walk with Christ. And so let me throw up... The big idea, first thing, the big idea is this guilt is the byproduct of the Christ follower focusing on themselves rather than Christ. Guilt is the byproduct of the Christ follower focusing on themselves rather than Christ. And so, what we're going to do to look at guilt and what we should be doing with it, we're going to be in Psalm chapter 130. Okay, Psalms a very long book. Uh, we're going to be in Psalm chapter 130. It's eight verses. And here's the way I want to do this. I want to break it down uh, in, a, in a few sections and identify what the psalmist is teaching us through this psalm. And so we'll start with verses one through three. The psalmist says this. He said, from the depths of despair, O Lord, I call for your help. Hear my cry, O Lord. Pay attention to my prayer. Lord, if you kept a record of our sins, who, O Lord, could ever survive? Now, there's something I find very interesting about this psalm. Off the start, he says it's from the depths of despair that he cries out. Now, if you've ever read the Psalms, right? If you've ever just started in Psalm 1 and read through Psalm 150, there's something you'll find to be a very repetitive uh, nature or a very repetitive theme in the Psalms, and it's this crying from the depths. Right? The psalmist is always crying from the depths, and the reason is because life is very difficult. And we're in a very tragic life, but we have a God in heaven who hears our cries and calls us to come unto Him, right? But, But here, what I find interesting is most often... When you read the psalmist say things like that, he then talks about his enemies or that he's caught in a snare or or all these various things that are going on. But in this one, in this psalm, he only mentions one thing and it's sin. He doesn't talk about anybody else. Nobody else is a problem. Nobody's chasing him down. Nobody's trying to kill him. And yet, he finds himself in the depths of despair. And how often for us is guilt our greatest burden? And so what does he do? He cries out to the Lord. He cries out to the Lord. I don't know what you do when guilt weighs you down like a sack of bricks. But how often do we not Call on the Lord. How often instead do we do the exact opposite and run another direction because it's really before the Lord that we feel guilty? Right? You could look at your lives a lot of times. Listen, for, for, man, I'm not talking to only people who have done really bad things, right? Like sin is quantified in some way or qualified. Sin is sin because we offend a very big and worthy God. But what we tend to do is maybe we go, well, I never did bad sins and yet what you find yourself in is the older you get waking up every morning with heavier bricks on your chest. Heavier burdens of guilt over and over and over. And how do we usually respond to that? Well, we are what they call a guilt-innocence culture. So let me tell you how we don't respond to We usually don't respond by going to the Lord. We usually don't respond with gut-level honesty. We usually respond by watering down our sinful natures, watering down our sinful actions, and making it seem as though the things that we've done really aren't that bad in comparison to this person. And so on the level of comparison... We're really not that bad, and so that's what we do to try and get ourselves through the day. We run to self-help books, motivational speeches, and all these various things to try and get our eyes off of our guilt and onto some positive feature that we might have. But the dilemma with that is if you look at the psalmist, if you're honest with yourself, the psalmist, he's the problem. And let me just be blunt with you for a second. Now it's not to say that no one's ever treated you poorly, but in reality, what's the problem with you? You. And that's the problem with me, is me. We are our biggest enemies, we are our own letdowns, our own disappointments. And yet what we find in ourselves is this odd drive, I don't, I don't get it, I, I do it too. And I'm teaching this. But I find myself wanting to outrun it with these various forms of success, right? I begin to get a grasp of of my sinfulness, of my depravity, and then I go, how can I just be better, right? So I'm listening to all these Navy SEALs talk about how they own their life, and I'm like, I'm gonna do that too, and I fail miserably at it. Because mentally, I'm just not that strong. And then there goes the spiral even worse. Scripture would tell us in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You know what I find most interesting about this whole drive towards success? You know know what that is? It's a cover-up. Right? What, What a lot of us do, and most of us in this room probably, instead of just dealing with what we are, we try to prove to ourselves that we're something better. You know, we're like Rocky Balboa. Like, why did he want to go go the distance? To prove to himself that he's not a bum. And it's the same for us. We just want to prove that our existence is justified. And let let me give you a quick warning about something. If you're in that boat, when Adam and Eve first sinned, and they first recognized their shame and their guilt, you know what the first thing they did? They covered themselves with fig leaves. What's your fig leaf? What's the thing you're running to over and over and over to try and cover up that shame and cover up that guilt? The psalmist takes his sin to the Lord. He takes his guilt to the Lord. And I would strongly encourage that if you ever want to get away from guilt, You take it to the Lord. If we're the problem, how on earth are we going to be the solution? We need one outside of ourselves. One mightier than us. We need His grace. We need His forgiveness. And that's where the psalmist moves us. Look at uh, verses 4-7. through But you, speaking to God, but you offer forgiveness that we might learn to fear you. I am counting on the Lord. Yes, I am counting on him. I have put my hope in his word. I long for the Lord more than the watchman longs for the dawn. Yes, more than the watchman longs for the dawn. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with him there is unfailing love. His redemption overflows." a very, very stark contrast takes place here. He goes from talking about his own despair and ultimately his own record of sin as he mentions, God, if you kept a record of our wrongdoing, no one would survive that judgment. None. He switches from that. He said, if you were to do that, none would survive. But, stark contrast, but, you offer forgiveness. And we see that from another point of view. Listen, for, from, from a New Testament point of view, this was written in the Old Testament. This is before Christ. We see it after Christ, and we hear the Apostle Paul use something very similar. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1-4. through four. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins... You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger just like everyone else. Right, so there it is, the record of sin. If he were to keep it, who can stand? God's anger aimed at it. But God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much. See what the psalmist does? All direction taken off of self and aimed upward. The psalmist he doesn't go, "Man, I'm this, and man, listen, I deal with this in youth ministry. I'm sorry if I have my youth in here. I deal with this youth ministry all the time. We get them at refuge, or we get them at camp, or just a heavy lesson on a Wednesday night, and they come up to me afterwards and they're broken about their sin and I'm like, "Yes, so I'm I'm walking them in, right? This is how we get them to Jesus. The law condemns them, the law brings to death, it shows them they're sinful. So now let's show them the grace and love of God." In Christ Jesus. And I start bringing them there. And I start bringing them there and starting to recognize the sin and maybe they're crying a little bit. And then suddenly it happens. They go, but I'm a good person. And I'm like, no! No, you're not! How often do we try to contrast oh Lord, if you kept a record of sins, who could ever survive? But I'm pretty good instead of going but god you offer forgiveness god you're so good and then he moves on he says that he places his hope in the lord and in his word second peter chapter 1 verses 3 through 4 by his god by his divine power god has given us everything we need for living a godly life We have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who has called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share in his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. The psalmist says, I don't don't just hope in the Lord. But in his word, I hope in his promises, Peter says the same thing. He says, in his glory and in his excellence, he has given us precious and great promises. Why? Because by those promises, by believing them, by anchoring ourselves to them, by looking to them, by hoping upon them, we escape the corruptions of this world, our own sinful nature, our liberation is founded in the promises of God which have been purchased by Jesus Christ, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. That by his blood, all the promises of God are yes and amen to us. We turn to God, we turn to his word, because in his word he's faithful to his promises. But then he says something really interesting that I'm, I'm gonna be honest, it took me a long time to understand this. I long for the dawn. I long, I long for the Lord as the, the watchman longs for the dawn. And I'm like, what? Like, wh- I, I could think of comparisons. Like, I remember when we were in India, uh, a couple of back, I think 2019, we did a backpacking mission trip uh, through this rainforest, these remote villages, right? And so we were back. I'm excited because I love backpacking. I love rainforests. I love mountains. And day one, we just start dropping down this mountain, and I'm like, this is amazing, right? And we get to the bottom of this valley, and we're, we're sleeping at this river in the, in the valley of the mountains of the rainforest, right? Beautiful scenery, most beautiful thing ever, and I'm like, I could just sit out here for days and, and never take my eyes off of this. And as night falls, coming, we're setting up tents and everything. It gets dark there at 5.30 p.m. The sun comes up at 5 a.m., uh, and so we're trying to set stuff up, and they come, they go, hey, I need everybody's attention, our, 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 our nationals do. Just so you guys know, if you have to go out of your tent at any point in the night, you have to make sure and get somebody up and bring them with you. And I'm sleeping in a tent by myself, and I'm like, why? They're like, well, there's leopards out here. Uh, and so if you try to go out and go to the bathroom anywhere, they'll attack you and eat you. And I'm like... Biggest fear, all right, confession. Biggest fear, being eaten alive. I don't want it. The only way I don't want to die is to be eaten alive. Scares me to death. And so do you know what I do? I lay in my tent at 5.30 p.m. when it gets dark, and I just lay there until 5 a.m. when it comes up. And I don't know if you ever tent camp. It's not comfortable, right? We didn't have air mattresses. It's humid. I didn't even have a rain fly. We're in a rainforest, So I'm soaked, sleeping bag soaked, and I'm just like... And the moon is brighter than the sun. And so I'm laying there at night, moon gl- like shining in my eyeballs. I can't sleep. It's 2 a.m. I've still got three hours till the sun comes up, and I can't get out of my tent. And so I just sit there, waiting, longing for the rising of the sun so the leopards will go away. But the watchmen. They were responsible for so much more than their own lives. The watchmen set up on the walls of the city at night in an era when there were no spotlights, when the enemies could get very close to the walls before you ever saw them. And they kept watch all night long in hopes that they might see the enemy approach at a distance well enough to where they could call for everybody else and hopefully save the lives of their city. The watchman had a level of pressure that none of us in this room probably even fathom. And so when I think about how much the watch, I think about how much I long for the sun because of a leopard, much less having the lives of thousands of people in my hands, and my responsibility, that if I miss a single thing, they could all be dead. You know those watchmen were longing for the sun. And so the psalmist, and all of his guilt, longs for the Lord and hopes in his promises. And so he calls us to wait in him. You know what's most interesting to me? In the guilt and in the shame of this human being who's just like us, he celebrates God. He celebrates the character of his God. He celebrates his unfailing love. He celebrates his overflowing redemption. Despite his situation. Man, when I've had a rough week or a rough night or a rough morning, it's hard for me to celebrate anything. Worship's going on, I can sit in the back and just pout. Because I didn't get a good night's sleep. The psalmist says in the depths of despair, I'm celebrating my God in heaven. Verse 8, closing verse. He, being God, He Himself will redeem Israel from every kind of sin. This is where the hope comes in. Notice what He says. He, he, he writes will. He doesn't say He Himself did. But He Himself will redeem Israel. From every kind of sin. He has a future hope. That God himself. Not an angel. Not a prophet. But God himself. Would come and redeem Israel. From their sin. We have very familiar language to that. Within a thousand years after this psalm was written. A thousand years after. Matthew chapter One verses 20 through 21 and 23. Speaking of Joseph, it says, and he considered this, as he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit and she will have a son and you are to name him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means means God with us. Look who comes to redeem his people, to save his people from their sin. Not an angel, not a prophet, but God himself in the flesh comes to redeem his people from their sin. And so Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Verses 19 and 21. For God was in Christ. Locative term. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself, no longer counting their sins against them. How, Paul? How is it God is not counting people, right? God is just. How can a just God not count people's sins against them? Imagine for a second, if the judge of Magnolia just decided to start waiving crimes and acting like it never happened. Get him off the bench. That's injustice. But God is not counting people's sins, not counting their wrongdoing against them. How? For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. All sin, past, present, future, imputed, transferred to the account of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ penalized and punished for all our sin, past, present, and future, so that we never have to be penalized or punished for it. That's the gospel. That's the good news. The good news always has to begin with, we're sinful, but it always ends with God is gracious. So much so that he sent his only son to die the death we deserve so we could have the life that he deserved. And so now what we see is something, listen, the psalmist didn't see this. We see God's love and redemption and forgiveness more radically on the other side than they ever could have. And before we move into next steps, we're moving to next steps. I'm going a little over, I apologize. before we get to next steps, I need to say this. Until this, this is what we call the doctrine of justification, that we've been made right with God through Jesus Christ. Until this doctrine is so deeply saturated in our hearts that we are just soaking it and the aroma of it is flying off of us, we will never be able to truly outrun guilt by the gospel. We will always be trying to heap up new fig leaves of success and accomplishment and whatever you want to add to it on to try and cover up the shame and the guilt. It must be by the gospel of Jesus Christ and Him alone. Justification is essential. And so before we even move on to next steps, I need you to understand something. If you are not yet resting in Jesus Christ, then I don't know how these can help you. First next step, stop downplaying your sin to help you feel better about yourself. Stop downplaying your sin to make you feel better about yourself. What did Jesus say about about the prostitute who came to him for forgiveness in the house of the Pharisee? Those who are forgiven much love much. For a lot of us in this room, I think my fear is how many have a very tiny view of Jesus because they have a very tiny view of their own sin. They have a very tiny view of God's holiness because they have a very tiny view of how they've offended him. You see, as long as you're willing to downplay sin and say, well, it's really not that bad, you're also willing to say, well, God really isn't that holy. And Christ's blood really isn't that precious. And really, I don't need him that bad in the first place. Right? He just helps me in my weaknesses. False. The gospel says you're helpless. You have no, it's not just weaknesses. You are weak. You are helpless. You can't do anything to save yourself, and therefore you need all of Christ. You're dead in sin. Stop downplaying your sin to make yourself feel better. Secondly, pray your guilt to the Lord who is merciful. This is very backwards. Who does your sin offend? The Lord. It makes very little sense if your sin offends the Lord to run away from the one whom you've offended in hopes to make it right. Not to mention if you've ever read Psalm 139, you're not getting away from it. John writes this, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, he says, but, so just coming out of a conversation where he said if anyone claims they don't have sin, they're a liar, and God's word isn't in them, then he says, but, if we confess our sins to him, He, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. Don't hide your sin. Confess it. And when you do, God is faithful and He is fair in forgiving you and cleansing you. He's faithful because He promised it and He sealed that promise with the blood of Christ and He's fair in doing so because he punished your sin on the head of Christ, which means it would be injustice for him to bring it back up and punish it twice. And then lastly, for every one look at your sin, take 10 looks at Christ. For every one look at your sin, take 10 looks at Jesus Christ. Matt Chandler said it in a way that's much shorter and I think a little better because I like very blunt wording. Uh, Matt Chandler just said, get over yourself and celebrate Jesus. Because I think for a lot of us in this room, uh, the, the, the dilemma may be this. Okay, let me speak for your head. Maybe you're saying, okay, God forgave me, but I can't. But let me ask you a question. Who on earth do you think you are that you would elevate your throne of judgment against God? He can forgive you? The most high and holy creator, sustainer of the entire world? He can forgive you, but you can't forgive you? Are you better than him? If I could repeat the big idea one more time, because I just want it to stick. Guilt is the byproduct of the Christ follower focusing on themselves rather than focusing on Christ. Let's pray. Father, guilt has such a saturating effect. And it's so terrible because your word tells us in John chapter 4 that you were seeking for worshipers. But as long as our eyes are only fixated on our guilt, Lord, we cannot turn and worship you. So I pray that in the deepest parts of our hearts, we would know your forgiveness. We would know your grace, that our pride would fall to pieces. That you would wash away our guilt and our shame, that we would be able to celebrate with Paul in Romans 8.1 that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Father, if you sent your only son to be condemned so we don't have to, don't let us consider his death to be in vain. Lord, I pray that we partake in all that he offers in his death and resurrection so that we too could praise forever and celebrate your goodness. So reveal to our hearts in greater levels day after day your forgiveness and your mercy that's new every single morning. That we would praise you. Amen.